0: And in some ways it's a threat to education when, when students start learning what is not yet known. We're or or even asking questions about that. The best teachers that any of us remember usually were the teachers who didn't follow all the rules. The success of your life is measured by how many eyes that you have seen the world through. That has to do with education.
1: Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and I'm so excited about our guest today, Richard Louv. Richard is a journalist and author of 10 books, including Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs, as well as The Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. His books have been translated and published in over 24 countries. And in 2008, Richard received the Audubon Medal, as well as uh, many other medals over the course of his careers in terms of his work with uh zoological societies nature societies conservation societies i'm so excited about our my conversation with richard because he really opens up in terms of the role of empathy in learning the role of developing the senses beyond the traditional five senses and connecting with one another with nature and in terms of the importance of nature to open up imagination play creativity of course, learning, and how that is probably going to be the best way we have to tackle some of the issues that we have facing us today. I won't speak much further, and I'll leave room for my conversation with Richard. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for uh, being a guest contributor on our podcast. Really excited to speak with you about your views uh, uh, on the environment, on nature, on children. Um, wanted to start off the um, conversation with a question we ask all our guests, which is, who are you? What do you do? And how do you try to make a difference?
0: Uh, I'm Richard Louv, and I'm a journalist, and uh, at least I have been for quite a few decades. And uh, I've written a lot of books. I've written ten books, uh, and the last four have been about the human relationship with nature. Although that was a theme in the in in the other seven uh, other six books as well, but uh, in terms of making a difference, uh, as a journalist, uh, uh, you know, a lot of journalists will deny that they wanna make a difference in the world because it suggests they're not quote quote, unquote objective. And I never claim that Uh, I I have from the beginning, wanted to make some kind of difference.
1: One of the questions that we asked with with our guests is, in order to try to get a shared understanding of, of words that we have out there that we use all the time, words like freedom, democracy. And in the space of education, people use the word learning quite a bit. What is your definition of learning? How do you conceptualize the idea of learning?
0: Well, I think there's two kind of kinds of learning. One is to learn what is known, and the other is to learn what is not yet known. And I think that much of what Modern education does is limit uh, students to learning what is known and in some ways it's a threat to education when when students start learning what is not yet known We're or asking or're even asking questions about that. So you know we're in the era of of testing of everything being measured uh, and quantified well certainly in the world of nature which, I've written a lot about. Uh, we can apply science, but science only goes so far. So the scientists will be the first to admit that there's so much we don't know, and that's why they do their work. They ask questions about what they don't know about, and uh, I'm afraid that much
1: of education does not do that. It's interesting you say that. One of the books that I've recently read was called *A More Beautiful Question*, and specifically about that, saying that uh, suggesting that one should have more open-ended questions than one has answers. What do you think, from an education point of view, because we are talking about this idea of of tests and trying to figure out what you do know, how how do you think we could get out of this system or what are the the pathways to moving beyond uh, this testing culture, this uh, emphasis on quantitative uh, scores, and and really go into the other side that what you're talking about, which is open-ended finding out what we don't know and exploring what we don't know.
0: Well, I think testing is going to be with us. I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with testing, but it's when we begin and as we started in the 70s and 80s in the U.S., building schools with no windows because we thought that looking out the windows would distract the kids. Uh, you know, when we cancel recess uh, through the in the no, no child left inside, Era of education reform. Uh, literally, school, whole school districts were canceling recess for grade school kids, and some uh, elementary schools were being built with no play area, no playground. Uh, and this actually is insane, <laughs> because you know school boards say that they make decisions based on evidence. Based on evidence, they're evidence-based decisions. I don't think so. I think it's a kind of faith-based decision-making. I don't mean religion. I mean, faith-based in technology and computers. And I love computers. I've had uh, you know, a display, right? I had a, in, my, in 1981, I had a computer that I wrote on. And it was one of the first word processors from IBM. It had uh, kind of the, it, it, it made the noise and had the basic utility of a forklift, but I was one of the first reporters I knew and I bought it for myself. that had, had so I'm not against technology, but uh, there's a mantra in one of my books, The Nature Principle, or a thing that I say often, which is the more high-tech our lives become, the more nature we need. It's an equation. It's a budgeting issue of time and money for schools and for families and
1: for, uh, for us the two aren't mutually exclusive they might be seen as such but they're not no
0: they're they're not but uh the the folks who have been in charge of the future of education are not educators they're they're tech companies uh that have product move and the irony is and i wrote about this a few years ago in one of the books you know steve jobs didn't let his kids uh, play with iPods. He had small, I think, small children, I think two of them. Bill Gates is the same way, they, you know, he and his wife bought a big piece of property right on Lake Washington in Seattle so his kids could have some nature, their own private stream, you know? Uh, It's amazing how many uh, of the thought leaders or the programmers in Silicon Valley have cabins uh, up in the mountains uh, east of uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area uh, that are off the grid. And they go there to unplug, literally to unplug and to recharge, literally. So they know this, they know this, but you'll never hear them making this argument because they have product to move. And even though they know better, they've got their kids in nature preschools, a lot of them,
1: and one of the things we talk about quite a bit um, uh, on this podcast is in, in education, there's this idea that we have this industrial revolution model of putting kids in the same classes and moving them along at this certain pace. But but we think about it as well, that it's, it's not necessarily the model that's industrial revolution. It's, it's the kids that are widgets. We put them in, mess around with them, give them some scores, which is really just quality control and output them for, for the world of work. Um, in which case, this this need for technology is just that: this need to be able to fit into this world of work, to fit into uh, a system. It seems to me that naturally, the system there's there's a there is a tension between having to prepare kids for the world of work and having them be more in touch with nature. Does that seem like it? it, it, it makes sense to you, it just resonates with you, or or do you, um, how, do you how do you see the, this idea that we are still trying to grapple with? We don't have a, a perfect model of it either.
0: Yeah, well, nobody has a perfect model. And, you know, the minute you have a perfect model, it's the wrong model. So uh, You know, I don't buy perfect models. Um, it, there won't be one. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have to have a lot of really good teachers that are paid a lot of money and that they don't have to walk, uh, uh, follow the rules all the time. The best teachers that any of us remember from high school or grade school or middle school usually were the teachers who didn't follow all the rules. My brother is one of those teachers. He's a high school teacher up in Eureka, California. And I know my brother. <laughs> and, yeah, my brother in lesson plans shouldn't be in the same sentence. And uh, he's just not that kind of guy. And uh, his students love him. They voted him the most trusted teacher in his high school. Now that's saying something to be the most trusted. So I'm really proud of Mike. And, you know, he talks about fishing. He's a hardcore fisherman. So he talks about fishing all the time as metaphor. And his students love it, as I said. So he doesn't really fit the, uh, the rules. Not only that, the kids don't either. I mean, one of the things that I've written about in Last Child in the Woods and, and these other books is the enormous amount of research that has uh, emerged. Uh, uh, when I wrote Last Child in the Woods, which was published in 2005, which kind of named uh, what I called nature deficit disorder. And th- that phrase entered the language, several languages, but And uh, when I wrote that book, I could only find about 60 studies about the disconnect between children and nature, but also the benefits, in particular, the benefits, educational benefits, psychological, uh, physical health. Uh, I could only find about 60 studies. Uh, Today, if you go to the Children and Nature Network website, which is childrenandnature.org, Uh, which is, that's the nonprofit that grew out of Last Child in the Woods. If you go there, you'll see the research library that we've built of independently written abstracts. We don't write the abstracts of the studies, summaries of of over a thousand studies. So it's gone from 60 to a thousand, over a thousand, in a very short period of time. A lot of those are about education, about cognitive functioning. and. they show, you know, a tremendous impact of outdoor classrooms, of learning about everything, not just biology or science or nature, but about geography outdoors. Kids, most kids, perhaps, we're not sure of this. Most, maybe uh, most, certainly many kids learn but much better outdoors. And there's something about that, that we don't fully understand as to why that happens. But I have teachers, you know, since 2005, I'm on the book tour that never died. So I give a a lot of sermonettes, I give a lot of speeches. And afterwards, uh, there's often a teacher who will come up and say almost with the same sentence that I've heard, I think probably hundreds of times from other teachers, which is, The troublemaker in my classroom, when I get the class outdoors to learn in nature, the troublemaker becomes the leader, not just well better behaved, the leader of the class. I hear that again, and that's anecdotal, but the research I think would, would back that up. And I keep thinking often about those kids in black, you know, the goth kids sitting at the back of the classroom uh, many of them are on because they get the wiggles <laughs> and they're difficult. I keep wondering how many of those are leaders that we're losing, future leaders that we're literally losing because we're trying to make them fit their square peg in a, a round hole. And we're only teaching them in one environment. Not only that, it's a narrowing environment. It's not just the classroom. The the people who study, the scientists who study the human senses no longer talk about five senses. They talk conservatively about nine or ten senses. And some of these scientists talk about as many as 30 human senses, uh, most of which we don't use, but we're capable of. And um, what are we doing with these kids? We're sitting them in front of computers, in front of all kinds of screens. And we're telling them to limit their senses down to maybe two senses so they can uh, allegedly go anywhere in the world through the internet. Now, if we are spending that much time, not only our kids, but ourselves, blocking out as many of those, as many as 30 senses as we can, that to me is the very definition of being less alive. What parent wants their child to be less alive? What teacher wants his or her students to be less alive? But that's what we're doing, with education, but also in our homes.
1: And one of the things that uh, we've talked about uh, in the past uh, on on the podcast and on the blogs is this idea that when you do limit those senses, when you do keep it internal uh, and being able to go out in nature, you're you're connecting not just with yourself and with your mind, you're making the mind-heart connection, uh, but also the connection with others and, and, and with nature itself. That in many ways is is the gateway to solving many of our other problems, not just climate crisis, which is the most obvious ones, but also some of the socioeconomic crises that we're seeing, the 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 societal um, uh, issues that we're seeing out there, because those are connections towards each other. Do you do you see a connection there between between going between um, the the different areas uh, of, of of those disconnects, or or how do you see the role of nature, maybe? being another step towards looking at these crises.
0: Uh, well, we've got to do it. During the pandemic, suddenly people were at least talking about the outdoor classroom for social distancing. Um, there was a lot of activity, not nearly as much as is sometimes reported during the pandemic of getting students outdoors to learn. Now, again, the purpose was social distancing, not to learn better, but the research suggests that they learn better. They not only uh, learn literally, you know, uh, uh, better, but other things happen. There's been studies of kids playing in natural play spaces where they can roll down some grass and, you know, plant a garden, whatever. Uh, They've studied those kids in those environments at schools compared to kids who are playing on the typical Asphalt or cement playground. And what they find, these kids play very differently in those two environments. The kids in the natural play spaces are far more likely to invent their own games. That's the very essence of executive function, executive functioning, which is absolutely necessary if you're going to be an entrepreneur. You got to learn how to be your own boss. You got to learn to think differently. You know, that's That's what happens when you're making up games, making up the rules to your own games. Uh, Whereas the kids on the the cement playground, they're not usually making up their own rules. Um, In fact, on most play areas, uh, adults have made up the rules and adults are structuring how they play. And that's the antithesis to creative play. Um, There's another impact in natural learning areas what the researchers found is that kids in in those areas on those natural play spaces are far more likely to invite other kids who don't look like them to play with them or different races different culture different gender they're far more likely to do that in a natural play space than they are on a typical playground
1: what you're saying makes complete sense in the sense that if we have an artificial play space, you're already putting down say the basketball court lines or, or the soccer court lines or whatever it might be. Somebody else is telling the kids what that space is being used for, then in it itself completely limits the imagination and, and puts people within a, a structure.
0: Yeah, it does. And there's nothing I have nothing against soccer and, and all that, but uh, we are losing something when all play is adult directed. And um, so that's an area that we need to do more of. We need more outdoor classrooms. We need more uh, forest schools. In in Europe, they're called forest schools. And in the the US, they're called nature preschools, usually, or nature-based schools. Uh, And that's one of the things that's changed since 2005. The number of nature-based preschools has, has grown exponentially. It's hundreds now, and it was a handful in 2005. Um, still uh, not enough of them, but this is this is growing. There's more and more interest in this.
1: One of the things that we see popping up quite a bit right now is this emphasis in schools about the sustainable development goals. Um, and who have been around for a while and everybody's getting on board uh, with the SDGs. Um, I, I'd love to get your views on this um, in the sense that to me, um, and, you know, just, just wanting to get get your view on, on, on what, where we're going on this is, is that it's, it's a great anchor. Everybody can agree on it. This idea of an Overton window where it's an acceptable form of uh, of discourse is wonderful. But it just doesn't necessarily go far enough. It looks great on marketing. or sustainable school. But whether or not it's done on the inside is a different question. But even on a bigger level, it seems that so many of these sustainable development goals are about, they're, they're very human-centered rather than necessarily nature-centered. There might be, what, three of them that, that, are, that are nature-centered. What, what are your views on, on on the value of the sustainable development goal? Is it enough for now? Should we wait later to move towards more of a regenerative um, way of thinking? What, what's, the, what's the window of time that we have with these?
0: Maybe you could define the term for me because people interpret the word sustainable in many different ways.
1: And, and that's exactly it, right? Uh, so the UN Sustainable Development Goals in two thousand fifteen, they came up with seventeen goals um, uh, to, to, to move forward. And, and, and the schools, a lot of the schools have saying, "Oh, we're going to try to map our curriculum to meet some of these goals." Um, and so from that point of view, um, that, you know, there, there's a lot about, uh, uh, you know, great jobs, mental health, uh, economic growth is one of those goals. Uh, uh, a great way to have economic growth, which also kind of uh, Says a lot about what, what it's supposed to be, right? Um, and rather than thinking about zero growth, it's still about growth. Uh, and there's three of them that are in terms of clean air, life on Earth, and then clean water. But the rest is all very human uh, centered. Well, I you know
0: I have real problems with the word sustainability. To be sustainable, you know William McDonough, the great architect, likes to say, "Do you really want a sustainable marriage?" really that's all you want something that you can sustain uh it's all about not things not getting a whole lot worse well that's really limiting and it's limiting even when it's very specific to energy and nature and biodiversity and climate change it's very limiting so i i'm I, I'd, I'd vote for moving on from that work and, uh, um, I mean, regenerative is a good word. It, part of the problem is our language. It is It is difficult. It does make this conversation that we're all having very difficult. I mean, people say, people often remind me, you know, when I talk about nature deficit disorder and the disconnect from nature, they remind me, and they are right, that we are part of nature too. Human beings are nature. So how can we be separated from it? Good point but our our language really dictates a lot of the understanding. Uh, However, we can be careful with the language. I usually say uh, disconnected from the rest of nature, that people are disconnected from the rest of nature. I usually say, you know, the most recent book is our relationship with other animals. Notice I said other animals, not animals, even though the subtitle of the book, the publisher, didn't use the other word. Uh, So we do have to be careful about that, but the idea of sustainability, I think it's too limiting and it's about data, it's dry. It's most people hear the word sustainability and they immediately immediately think of solar panels and windmills, which is fine, got to have those. But that's a technical question. That's a technical issue. That's really uh, you know not, that's only a part Of what we have to talk about in terms of the future of life on Earth and our life as part of
1: that life on Earth.
0: Energy is only a
1: part of that. Going back to this idea of schools, this idea of a relationship with other animals, one of the things that I was really shocked is that in some schools that call themselves, you know, or or put on their marketing brochures that they're sustainable, they still have biology classes where they dissect frogs or, you know, ox parts or whatever it might be. That to me sends uh, a message to young children, that it's okay to do that, to appropriate. Um, what, what is, what is your, your view in terms of, of how schools prepare kids to have or not to have healthy relationships with the animal world or other animals? Well,
0: there's a in, the, in our wild calling, I do talk about the classroom and the issues like that. Um, uh, I think it's a good idea to have animals, live animals in schools. Just as it's a good idea to have live animals in nursing homes and assisted living communities because of the effect these animals have on human beings. that uh, is a good effect. It calms us. it it gets us out of our data-driven mania uh, to have to be petting an animal our, our blood pressure goes down when we pet our cats and dogs, uh, it opens us to, Another way of viewing the world. Animals, studies have shown that animals, certainly pets with kids, teach empathy, teach kids how to have empathy. Um, Now, we have to treat these animals very, very carefully and very well. And there is controversy about that. Some people think that that is a bad thing to have animals in captivity at all, let alone in a classroom. You know, there are a lot of shelter animals out there. And those animals, some of them are wild animals that have been injured. And when they end up in classrooms, I think that's a good thing. And something happens to the kids when they're in the animal, you know, with an animal in a classroom. And I've heard many teachers say that. Something happens for the animal, too. Depends on the animal, of course. But, you know, guinea pigs like to be pet, petted. <laughs> they like human contact. Uh, when we when we move into that space, that space of empathy, uh, I think everything is right about that. if we care for these animals, as they care
1: for us. We, we have therapy dogs at our school, school where we teach, and, and they have tremendous uh, effects on the children. Bring them in. You've got a bunch of third and fourth graders who, are generally, jumping up and down. They sit on the carpet. They're all been mesmerized. They pet the the, the dog. Uh, it, it's had a tremendous effect. Um, and and we see in it, so many of these children, like like you were mentioning, who who might have who might be bouncing up and down uh, in the back of the classroom, uh, really have a special connection to find a, a much softer side of that. Um, what what do you think in terms of some of the, the research that's out there? I know you mentioned it a little bit, but where should the research go from here uh in order to maybe make it so that it can be a safer place? Maybe it can open up the curriculum, not just these one-off, you know, side projects that are bolted onto schools, but maybe integrating that more into the curriculum. Um, what are your views or thoughts on that?
0: Well, I personally I don't think in terms of curriculum very much. Uh That's something that the education industry cares a lot about. And uh, that's not my field. Uh, I I think that we, here's something that I think ought to be taught in schools as part of the curriculum. Uh, uh, It's called critical anthropomorphism. And I write about it in Our Wild Call. Anthropomorphism is, is a taboo word among many scientists. Anthropomorphism is projecting human qualities onto an animal to the point where you're missing the animal's animalness. And I understand that. I understand that can get in the way of real science learning. Uh, But I actually think that anthropomorphism has been underrated. If you interpret anthropomorphism not as projecting uh, human qualities onto animals, but as seeing the world through that animal's eyes to the best that you that you can. That's a different thing. That's where the empathy is. That's where entering a, a parallel universe comes in. That's where the doors of perception open when suddenly you're looking at the world through the eyes of another creature. And there's a quote. Patty Selly, I think is her name, in the book. She's a, a writer of children's books. And she said that she's always felt that when you get to the end of your life, the success of your life is measured by how many eyes that you have seen the world through. Uh, that, to me, makes a lot of sense. That's That has to do with education. That has to do with just experiencing life to not just be trapped within our own cells. Critical anthropomorphism is, was developed as a concept by a guy named Bergdorf, whose first name I always forget for some reason. Uh, He's a great guy. He uh, is a herpetologist and a psychologist. And what he means by that is he says, if you're gonna study a snake, you have to sit with the snake. You have to be with the snake. Uh, and uh, he says it's a two two part thing here. The first is as you're sitting with the snake, you conjure up in your mind, you bring up in your mind, all of the hard scientific knowledge that you have learned or are learning about that snake. What is it doing with its tongue? How is it sensing the world? How is that snake sensing the world? And the second part of the exercise he says is use your imagination, become the snake. And he he does this with his students, his college students. And I think that should be done with every middle school student. I think this comes naturally to kids. But something happens in biology in middle school all those kids that were really good at snakes, like I was, you know, they carried their little golden guide to snakes around in their back pocket, or they were the ones who knew all the birds in the in the neighborhood, uh, and they they were the ones that spent a lot of time in the woods. They get to biology in seventh grade, eighth grade, and they've turned it into math. They've they've taken the experience away from it, the primal experience away and turned it into equations. Nothing wrong with equations, nothing wrong with math, math, nothing wrong with uh, learning microbiology because there's a lot of jobs in that in the future, aren't there? A lot of companies are looking for that, aren't they? Nothing wrong with that, but that's not all of natural history. That's not all of science. That's not all of life. So there's critical anthropomorphism, Kids learn to become the snake. They learn to become the thing that they're studying. They learn empathy. And what Bergdorf says, which is fascinating, he said, once you've done those two steps, apply it in your mind, everything you know about how the snake senses the world. And then secondly, use your imagination, become the snake. He says, if you do both of those steps, then you are far more likely to ask the right scientific question. And so, you know, this is not anti-science. This is broadening of science.
1: To me, it seems like it is science, absolutely, in terms of asking questions. One of the problems, as you mentioned, with the biology is that in chemistry and so forth, is you're asking people to replicate experiments. But that's not what scientists do. If Newton replicated experiments this whole time, we wouldn't have gotten very far. And uh, perhaps it's a question of rethinking the curriculum that you know that you don't necessarily think about, but but rethinking it in terms of not trying to fill our minds with content, but rather teaching kids to do just that: empathize, ask questions. What is it like to be the other person? Maybe that should be the new curriculum. There
0: is a, a great quote I found recently, and it's from a, a guy named uh, Leo Strauss, <laughs> and he wrote that thinking. Is seeing something noticeable, which makes you see something you weren't noticing, which makes you see something that isn't even visible. See, that's that's that is learning about what you don't know instead of that's learning about what is not known rather than always learning what is already known. That's science, that's it exactly. It's art. You Know it's, it's uh, well, it should be writing, it should be journalism, knowing something that is not yet known.
1: I, I want to ask you two more questions. The first one, uh, might be fairly easy, might not be. Um, what books are you reading right now? I just read,
0: finished. I don't finish many books, I'm not a good reader, I'm a slow reader,
1: believe it or not.
0: I get caught up in the style and, and the thoughts, and so I, I don't finish, I get bored with books, isn't that terrible to admit? Um, uh, you know, uh, I shouldn't even admit that's terrible, (laughs) but I do. But my son suggested my, he's in his early thirties and he's into science fiction. So he got me to read, uh, the moat in God's eye. And I can't remember the name of the, the writers, but it's about an encounter with an alien civilization, you know, a thousand years from now in space, humans have this first, they finally, a thousand years from now, encounter a, an alien, so-called alien civilization. Uh, it was, um, I worked hard to finish that book. Because <laughs> <laughs> the whole book is dialogue, the whole book, the whole <laughs> book is 400 pages of he said, she said. and uh, But it deals with some really interesting ideas. So that saved
1: the book for me. What's the idea that interested you the most or that compelled you the most?
0: Near the end of it, they have to negotiate with this other
1: civilization
0: that, that is equal in intelligence, but very different from human beings. And they're afraid of this civilization or these these aliens. They, they're afraid of them. Um, they don't quite understand them. And... Uh, it's It's complicated, but they have to negotiate. And the people from the other species have to negotiate also. So the part that was the most interesting in the book is the maneuvering. and you could imagine uh, Henry Kissinger and you know you could imagine sitting down with the Iranians with the Americans, all of these uh, peace treaties that get worked out or not so peaceful treaties. Um, uh, that part was interesting to me that people who do not know each other literally uh having to come to terms with each other so and i now have to make a book report to my son
1: by the way <laughs> last last question which is uh going to be um really the et cetera section what what are you thinking about what's your next project what are the things that that um that that are on the horizon for you
0: um i'm really trying hard to resist doing another book right now um, but i find that almost impossible to resist so i'm i've got several ideas in in mind um uh, you know i i I, I, d- I doubt this will happen but i'd like to write a little bit more personally than i am i quote a lot of i mean a classic journalist i quote a lot of people
1: and every now and then
0: i say what i think and uh, I'd like to err on the side of what I think for change
1: after 10 books. So Richard, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. really appreciate uh, you, you sharing your thoughts with us. Um, this is great. And, uh, and uh, looking forward to uh, the next um, the next piece that comes out from you, be it now or in several years or whatever it is, that, according to your timelines. Oh, thanks, Ben. Thanks for what you do. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. Thank you so much for listening today. We're looking forward to more guests on the show throughout the season, guests who are involved in really pushing the boundaries of education, but also connecting us with some of the more biocentric ways of thinking, uh, moving beyond student-centric, moving towards ways we can do to change the way we think and act in order to contribute to the welfare of the bio-collective. That is, thinking beyond the human as the center, thinking more as life as the center. Please leave us your comments. Our website is wwwcoconut Thinking. Dot. Design. We always uh, enjoy uh, responding to your comments. In the meantime, join us next time. Bye. Bye.